The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Really at the heart of what Orbital Farm is, is we are a project development firm. We are integrating proven existing technologies and developing these business models and developing these project opportunities in different places that will come in a whole bunch of different forms. We have a very clear architecture and that architecture is driven by this. In 20 years time, we wanna have the ability to support hundreds of people living and working in space. The only way that you're going to be able to do that is to take a look at the waste streams and the resource streams that you're going to have available in that domain in the future and design an ecosystem that can be derived from that. That's your supply chain. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 4. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, you're in the right place. It's the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. And as we wrap up, 2021. This is the last episode of the year and not of the season. So stay tuned for that coming right at your podcast player early January. I want to take a moment to thank all the listeners and all the supporters, all my sponsors, uh, all the guests that I've had on the show. I would not have a podcast without all of you and uh, I'm eternally grateful for your trust in me and your trust in the show and the value that you get and letting me know uh, and sharing the story with other colleagues in the industry, other people that you come across in the industry. And uh, I have to say, it's been really heartwarming. And I'm looking forward to kicking off 2022 in the same fashion. So make sure if you are enjoying the show to leave a rating or review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP so I could get to know the community a little bit more. If you missed last week's episode, Simon Deacon is the founder and CEO of Light Science Technologies. If you hadn't heard of him or heard of his company, 
They're passionate about delivering lighting, science and research proving plant monitoring solutions that help growers grow more with less. Simon's got a lot of experience in the LED space, and we talked in depth about his products and the research his company's doing and the future of LED technology and how light science differentiates themselves from the competition. We talk about the impact of supply chain issues, it's on everyone's mind nowadays, and how they're approaching customer relations through the lens of win-win partnerships. So make sure you check out that last episode. This week I get to speak to so Scott Bryson, space farmer and founder of Orbital Farm. Thank you for joining me on Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So yeah, we were chatting a bit in the green room and you said home is Toronto now? Yeah, I live up in Toronto and grew up in the country around here and moved to the city for university, started companies, haven't left. How long have you been in either an entrepreneur or a founder? Or how long has that gene been active in you? It's an interesting way to put it. The gene, I think, has been active since my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was an entrepreneur, but he was an inventor. He worked for a company called Hot Point in the UK and contributed a lot of work into the heating element. So, you know, we've got the wax sealed patents at home with on the uh, the black spiral heating element on the top of everyone's stove. And so a lot of heating elements that are still in a lot of irons. GE bought the company, so it's, you know, own it. But certainly that gene has definitely been, I feel like I'm part of the, somehow part of me. And I always just even growing up was figuring out how to put things together. I took apart and bought a couple different ARC-7s because I wanted to learn and understand how rotary engines functioned. And I just I loved the concept of them. And never really thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, but started off while I was still in university, actually. There was, you know, a whole opportunity in the how to tell stories in online space that no one really understood what to do. And so I created my first company in 2005, which is the same year YouTube was founded to give a digital times. I wish I'd created YouTube, (laughs) you know, and I ran that company for 10 years and sold the company off to a holding group in the U.S. And I joined the holding group and their M&A team. And we helped them roll up another 19 different companies across North America. I got to work with a number of different investors and their portfolios of different customers and clients. I got to build another couple different companies within that holding group and also outside of that with other partners and really started down this journey about five and a half, six years ago in 2015 to 2016, when I really started to get a handle on what was going on with climate change, what was going on with the global hunger situation, and just the understanding of how investment functions and how globally we're just not making the progress that we need to meet the challenges that are in front of us. And, you know, just understanding that challenges that we're facing are really business model challenges we have the capability of producing as much food as we want. We can do it anywhere we want. We can capture all the carbon dioxide that we want. We just need the right business model to make that function and the willpower to make that happen. I mean, we collectively as a society decided to end slavery and well, for the most part, overt slavery, maybe was a better way of putting it. But we have the same capacity and capability to get through these challenges and struggles. And that was really what I wanted to address. And I think, you know, kept me down this entrepreneurial pathway. I saw that you had some earlier experience with aquaponics as well. And so was this something where 
these you know, technologies, for lack of a better term, were something that you were becoming aware of? Because I mean, some of the stuff like hydroponics, I mean, it's been around for a long time, you know, probably maybe even thousands of years, you know, if you, depending how far back you want to go. And this idea of ancient civilizations fascinates me as well. So if you look at some of the stuff that was done in places like Egypt, and you're like, well, to try to recreate that now would be extremely <laughs> challenging. And so that opens up another wormhole. But I think it's in our consciousness. And I think we just forget sometimes. And it feels like we're going through another cycle of awakening and realization of what is happening on this planet and what our responsibilities are as stewards of this planet. And so can you talk a little bit about what was happening or what was bubbling up inside of you to make this more alive for you? Yeah. So, you know, aquaponics is a great example. You know, it's I think from my understanding, it's 4,000 years old and it was taking place in Central America. It was taking place in Asia and it is a replication of what happens in nature. Uh, it is biological ecosystems and the, the reproduction of that. And it wasn't until the 70s that it really became scientifically formalized. And, you know, where we see aquaponics and aquaculture systems today really sort of was born out of a lot of that understanding. But the pathway for me was actually a stage even earlier than that was in creating food products from waste streams. I figured that sort of my genesis moment really came from the way that we get through climate change is to look at waste stream sources as revenue streams. And if we can make that leap, and if we can identify technologies, if we can enable the capabilities where waste streams look like valuable resources, we can mobilize global capital to invest in the solutions that are needed to address the challenge at the pace and the scale that's required. That's the general thesis. And so I started with CO2. You know, how can we look at CO2 as this component? And I came across this technology that NASA had created and worked on in the late 60s. Late 60s is when this work was really taking off. And they were looking at the situation where, well, we've got this, you know, if we want to do a mission longer than a year, and, you know, we can't bring cows and chickens and pigs with us. How are we going to have a protein source for us? And what does Earth's ecosystem function and do? How, where are protein sources derived from? How is this created? And they, they looked into soil micro, microbes. And these organisms are single cell organisms that consume sort of the base level of materials that are available. And, you know, that's CO2, that's oxygen, that's hydrogen, it's ammonia. They live in water. And these are some of the earliest organisms that thrived on this planet. And these organisms consume CO2. And so when I came across this, this was just completely eye-opening. Wow, here's a solution that is utilization of a waste stream source that is causing climate change challenges and solving a protein challenge problem with a natural process that already exists. And NASA has already done a lot of the heavy lifting into this so long ago. Now, you know, there's so many reasons that that now hasn't been proliferated, but it's largely been a funding problem. The funding, NASA's funding changed from supporting human habitation in space in the, in the early 70s, where that made up more than 50% of their budget. And all that money was then funneled into building shuttle program. And all of the work and progress and huge amounts of progress that was made into these organisms really was lost. People retired. The companies that worked, did the work and developed the prototypes all completely pivoted in our different directions. I talked to them and they have no knowledge and no, no corporate capabilities within those sectors any longer. So 
that was really a big eye-opening moment for me. And I joined and, and started helping one of the companies that was commercializing it. They started off in the biofuel sector. They developed the organisms to be able to produce polymers and biostimulants and proteins and oils to replace palm oil, to replace you know other oils for you know other purposes within the fuel sector or ingredient sector. And it was just mind-blowing to have this powerful tool that has a flexibility of inputs, that has a flexibility of outputs, that is a natural process, like its waste product ends up being water. And so, you know, it's really what you look for when you're trying to do systems thinking, when you're trying to do large scale change is you look for elegant solutions and elegant solutions is a nice way of saying things just fit in a serendipitous way, but nature finds elegant solutions because of millions of optimizations and billions and trillions of optimizations over time. And that's how elegant solutions develop. And those are the things that as a species, as a society, that's what we really need to begin to embrace. And so that's, yeah, that's what we started doing and taking a look at aquaponic systems. It's a very long departure from the question of aquaponics, <laughs> but it's all related because it's about thinking about cycles and it's about thinking about waste as resources. And that's what aquaponics really is. It is the waste from fish becomes the input components for the fertilizer components for your plants and plant growth systems. And when you look at an aquaponic system, what drives the economic of that economics of those systems? Well, it's energy. It's an availability of water to start, but you know, you can get to points where that water can be recycled. It's the energy and the water and the feed to be able to feed the fish. And that enables your plants to thrive. And so that's a really big gap today in how you're going to develop sustainable food systems for aquaculture systems. And that really, you know, these single cell organisms are perfectly adapted for that. They are the build, basic building blocks um, and amino acids that are exactly tailored for fish because that's the basis of the ecosystem in the aquatic sector. What was interesting is uh, this concept of the waste stream as not as an energy source, which it can be, but I think the, the slight distinction of it as a revenue stream is interesting because I, I feel what it does, and you might be able to speak to this a little bit, is I think when people realize they can build a business out of it, you sort of get a lot of the, the brightest minds and investment dollars come in. And you know, it would be nice to think that everyone would just do things altruistically <laughs> in this world, but sometimes the the driver of making a business out of it can lead to positive results, especially when you have a lot of investment dollars. Because some of this is investment and money intensive because you need you need sort of need to catch up to nature to your point because it's had the the millions of years of iterations and you know we don't have the luxury of that cycle of time. So I think it's interesting to see how that's becoming awake for folks who, you know, like yourself, who have the experience, who have the passion, and who see that this is as one of the most pressing needs of our time. Yeah, I mean, I think you raised a lot of really important points, you know, philanthropy, you know, altruistic things should be able to solve these challenges. But we have almost a billion people that don't have enough food to eat tonight. And that number has increased from last year, by like 120 million people. I mean, Canada's 37 million people alone. I mean, the scale at which the problems are proliferating today is vast. And vertical farming technologies offer capability to be able to address some of this, but it doesn't address those 120 million people we, we just talked about. 
right now it's completely focused into leafy greens and high value products and extremely luxury type of food products. And it doesn't really address the bigger challenges and deeper problems. It certainly has a major impact from a climate perspective, from a logistics perspective, from a, you know, helping to produce local jobs and resource streams. It's not focused on addressing how do you solve these bigger challenges. So it takes a focused effort to make that happen. It takes business models that are specifically geared at that. It takes investors that can get a return on the capital that they're investing in so that the projects have to be designed from the core to address some of those challenges and problems. And so really at the heart of what Orbital Farm is, is we are a project development firm. We are integrating proven existing technologies and developing these business models and developing these project opportunities in different places that will come in a whole bunch of different forms. We have a very clear architecture and that architecture is driven by this, you know, in 20 years time, we want to have the ability to support hundreds of people living and working in space. The only way that you're going to be able to do that is to take a look at the waste streams and the resource streams that you're going to have available in that domain in the future and design an ecosystem that can be derived from that. That's your supply chain. How do you build up the biomass? How do you build up your nitrogen? How do you build up your water supply systems? How do you build up your proteins and your carbohydrates and all of the different components that you need nutritionally to support human habitation and life? And so you take those design constraints and you bring that today and we've got to figure out how to integrate these systems. We've got to figure out how they operate at scale. We've got to figure out where they fail and they break. And where, you know, three stages down, how the water filtration system out of an aquaponic system is affected by the bioreactor that has, it's capturing carbon dioxide from the astronauts. What if the acidification changes in some component and that has a downstream or or accumulation effect, you know, three or four stages down that takes four years to emerge before that actually happens? We see examples when you look into the International Space Station and their life support system, we see examples exactly like that. The higher concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, the condenser for extracting the water out of the air had more acidity than they had planned, ended up causing a leak behind the walls years after. That was the determination was because of the high CO2 levels that there were in the atmosphere. And that was what caused it. it didn't emerge till I think like you know, five or six years after it had been built and were operating perfectly fine. But that situation happening on Mars would mean likely you've just now lost your entire colony. Mm-hmm. If your life support system collapses, they're all going to die. And so that's not an acceptable risk. And so what we need to do is we need to have the capability of building these large scale systems and we need to test everything. Who knows if you know, algae systems, if a specific vertical farming system is good for these types of crops, if, if this aquaponic system growing these types of fish is, is really good. What we need to do is we need to build a consistent, reliable data set. We need to have many different iterations of these different systems. And we need that to be tested and operated for a 15 to 20 year time frame. So not there. Um, that was Coverti is a, is one of the companies that can take CO two and turn this into proteins and turn this into polymers and feeds. So that was really you know working alongside that team was incredibly eye opening. You know it was a brilliant team of sixteen PhDs that you know I jumped in and was like I don't know how I can help, but this is the technology <laughs> that the world needs, not other technologies. So you know let me help you, and sure. I did. And so I, you know, I worked with them on this and that was really the germination of this idea was that that core technology is fantastic, 
but it can't operate in isolation. It needs renewable energy. It needs green hydrogen. It needs carbon capture systems. It needs feed mills. It needs centrifuges. It needs all of this upstream and downstream processes. And you need to be able to, when you're trying to deploy large industrial scale projects like this, you need to have an understanding of that whole ecosystem. And there are very few people in the world that understand that. And that's really where the the architecture of what we're trying to develop and deploy really came from and stemmed from. So can you talk a little bit or take a, a trip back a couple of years? Talk to me about where you're at personally, what you're looking at, what you're consuming or, or what you're working on. How does the idea for Orbital Farm <laughs> start to germinate in someone like you with all this experience, with all this passion, with all this opportunities that you've had to work with some of these brilliant minds. And I'm just, I'm always curious about origin stories, just kind of like how it all starts to come together. Yeah. So it takes time. I've been, I was fortunate to be my own investor and have the patience and have the focused effort to be able to really learn at at a very deep level, each of these different components from the energy, from the biotechnology, from the vertical farming systems, from automation systems, from water treatment, from aquaculture, from aquaponics. It's a PhD in itself. And so that has afforded me the capability to have this clear perspective on what to, how to, where to start. And the beginning phases of the company, what we focused on were, were to try to validate, could we develop commercially viable investable assets at industrial scales, you know, hundreds of millions of dollar assets? Could we develop these projects in different locations? easily and, and, you know, with relative speed. And so we spent our time, you know, going to the northern part of the Netherlands, going and discussing with people in the Middle East and visiting Dubai and Abu Dhabi, visiting Bahrain, speaking to people in Egypt, speaking to customers in Japan and visiting Japan. We almost built a project for the Olympics right downtown Tokyo and to mining companies alongside operations down in Namibia and sub-Saharan Africa and alongside these other commercial industrial partners and came up with truly hundreds of potential opportunities where these could be deployed if all the right mix was there. If the investor, if you had investor capital, if you had the right project flow, if you had the right engineering and feasibility studies completed, these are viable project locations. And that sort of said to us, okay, well, look, where we're going to execute first is really going to be important. And so Another thing that's important to understand within you know, the overall context of Orbital Farm and what we're trying to achieve is the scale component. And so biotechnology is an enabler for aquaculture systems. Aquaculture systems are enablers for controlled environment agriculture system and vertical farming systems. And the ability to recycle nutrients, the ability to recycle water within these types of setups and systems are really enabling from an agriculture production standpoint. And so it's important to understand the scale of when you learn and understand about fermentation technologies. These normal businesses will produce somewhere in the you know, 10,000 tons a year, upwards of 100,000 tons a year of, of a biomass product. 100,000 tons of a product at you know 80% protein content, that's enough for four and a half million people. Daily protein every day. And you know, you're going to do a pro forma on a project for 30 years. So you build one asset, you can now support a country like Namibia of 2 million people. You can support double their population, which means they could, you know, not that people are going to be consuming this stuff directly every single day for every meal, 
but the scale is important to understand. You stout, you now are looked at like a mining operation as an extractive resource. You're extracting sunlight, you're extracting carbon dioxide, and you're producing you know significant portions of food products and enabling assets to be able to enable the controlled environment agriculture systems to proliferate in these places. So what this back to the global hunger situation, 200 of these facilities is enough daily protein to support the billion people that don't have enough food to eat today. So that really aligned to our goal. So when uh, I think just for the benefit of listeners, sometimes when they hear like a term like a daily protein, like can you put it in like real world terms? Like what does that mean? What does that look like? Are we talking like basically tofu squares <laughs> or does it, is it become something a bit more palatable? And I, I think as people think about this, is it soylent green? <laughs> <laughs> so people have these ideas and people have, you know, thanks to movies, have these visions of what these can and, and probably shouldn't be. So I'm just curious um, <laughs> how you do explain that sometimes for, for the lay person. Yeah. So what this actually physically looks like is a powder. They're single cell organisms. You grow them in a, it look like the facility looks like you walk into a brewery and the large stainless steel cylinders. And instead of having yeast produce alcohol, we have these single cell organisms that are consuming these, these gases and they, they themselves grow. And you can, you can select those little single organisms to produce a bunch of oil. If they, if you grow them in the right way, you can have them just grow up a whole bunch of body mass and and that can that's the proteins you can have them produce a bunch of polymers so you could make a bio-based plastic and so any of these combinations is really just about how you're growing them and the specific strain that that you're going to select just like a seed that you would normally select between you know different optimized for different environments and so you what you get out of this is sort of a flavorless colorless ish uh, lighter color type of powder and that powder can then be made into whatever you want that's really an ideal platform you can blend this into flowers and make a protein enriched flour like i'm you know just doing some experiments at home in my bread maker and i'm putting three and a half four scoops of whey protein into my bread and i'm getting a sourdough like of texture in my bread and that slice of bread two slices of bread now has uh has like almost 20 grams of protein in that and so a daily a person needs an average adult needs 50 to 60 grams per person per day you know if you're working out and really trying to build up you know that could be significantly more but really you know that's what what the base requirements are but you can get to a point where you can have a bread product which is one of the most universal products on the planet and you can provide the daily protein requirement for somebody for sense and there's no animals these organisms are vegan you know you can produce them anywhere on the planet they're completely climate independent in terms of fluctuating and volatile climates and so you can make them into burgers and sausages and just like the beyond beef burger and just like the impossible burger they could use this protein source instead of pea protein instead of soy proteins and or in aquaculture feeds you know instead of using soy or instead of using ground up fish which is completely unsustainable and collapses ecosystems in the ocean. This is really what those little fish are bioaccumulating, anyways, and what they're you know. So so you're sidestepping bioaccumulation of heavy metals and microplastics and all the crap that's in the ocean that we put there and and exists there. You know, this is a great way. This is why you know you want to limit how much red tuna you're going to consume because it's not it's not healthy for you. What's been bioaccumulated and that ecosystem. This is completely sidestepping that. 
several different threads I'm looking to pull there. First of all, when's the cookbook coming out of recipes? <laughs> that's that's probably got to be in the future somewhere. Yeah, well, because I think it's a practical application, right? Sometimes because people they hear these concepts and you know they thankfully for, you know, companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible, have, are paving the way. My partner and I are for the pescatarian for the most part she's better at it than i am <laughs> but i having grown up eating meat it's just there's something about the craving for protein and, and i'm wondering if you know this solution like this addresses that because i've tried gardein i've tried impossible i've tried all of them and if you've grown up eating meat <laughs> the challenge is the texture but there's other ways to cook it i think that's to your point just stepping back a bit i'm always curious being an entrepreneur myself and having spoken to tons of ceos and founders on the show how do you think about like pulling together you know the best and brightest minds? Because I imagine as you're thinking about Orbital and what this is going to look like and how to get this started off the ground, talk to me a little bit about how you think about building a team yeah. to build something like this. Yeah, the team part's really exciting. It's frankly been some of the best part of this work. When setting out on this, it was also thoughtful in the constructing of this architecture. And space is an important component to that as well. You know, when you think about how do you enable this vision, how do you enable this capability? If, if this is a business model challenge and this is a financing challenge, how do you enable solving this problem? And it needs to come from patient capital. It needs to come from some of the smartest and brightest engineering minds on the planet. Where do those exist? Where, If you are the smartest person in your high school, where do people go? Well, you say, you know, maybe they're going to go to be a brain surgeon. Or maybe they're going to go be a rocket scientist. So, Or it used to be Google and Facebook before <laughs> people have realized that they may not want to work for companies like that. <laughs> but the aerospace sector has done a fantastic job of attracting some of the brightest minds on our planet. And the investors that are investing into the aerospace sector are also patient capital investors. You have to have long-term vision into these components and capabilities. And so the attraction of people to a big vision with frankly, a realistic, I mean, when I say 200 facilities is enough to provide a billion people end hunger, that's an achievable goal in a short enough time frame to address the problem. That's enough motivation for people to volunteer. I can't tell you the number of people that over the years of our business have volunteered their time, their resources, their connections and contacts to help further this. And it takes that level to execute this properly. These are incredibly different technologies that never typically touch or talk to each other. And so it has taken a team of you know, 70 different consultants and investors and advisors to be able to pull all of this stuff together and to really you know, double click deep into, okay, is this possible? This, is, you know, this seems to look accurate. What are some of the limitations? What are the questions we need to ask? And teasing that all out. Now, we're not 70 full-time people at all right now, but we're working towards executing on our first project. And that's really where you start pulling people together. But the creating an inspirational message and mission is fundamental to enabling this future that we want to have. Like, I've got a two-year-old daughter. No, she's not even quite two, but she's acting like she's three. But, you know, the future I want her to live in this is what I'm trying to create and this is realistic and this is possible and this is investable and this is, we just need to execute. And that's the setup that capability attracts the right type of people that you want to work with. It attracts other entrepreneurs. 
and this is enabling to to them as well in different countries and nations when you want to build 200 you know to 200 to 500 million dollar projects you can't do it alone you can't build this from yeah. from a central architecture you need to be an enabler and you know as an early entrepreneur i learned really early on that different management styles. And we first started out in our business and we hired a bunch of juniors and they would work under us and they would delegate tasks to them and train them. And it was great. And it was really motivating to be able to train people like that. But it wasn't until later that I came to realize that actually, if we hire the people that are way better than me, and so to do this task, I was able to delegate things so much faster and easier because I knew the faster I could get this out of my hands and into their hands, they're going to come back to me with something that was 10 times better than I could have done and 10 times better than I could have educated someone else to do. And so when you can build a team around some of the brightest and the best minds and be picky about, look, this is the type of person that we want. This is who, who we need. And ask for that to your network. You get some incredible people back from all over the planet. Yeah, I would imagine it's an opportunity that would be attractive to people who uh, are self-starters who constantly like to be challenged, who who, prob who are problem solvers, who uh, can work independently, <laughs> don't need a lot of direction, but also can, you know, just some guidance on what the outcome needs to look like, but have some flexibility in terms of how they get there because it allows them to, you know, show their creativity or their problem solving skills. I imagine it's a unique mix of folks that, that thrive in environments like that. And, you know, the, a lot of the people that come to us, are they're in their last stage of their career. And they are, they've worked for 20, 30 years in these areas and are specialists. And, you know, one of our advisors has spent his entire career in, in barley and has done some amazing experiments and done a whole bunch of fantastic things and, you know, is completely inspired by what we're trying to do. And the same thing goes from an engineer who was an entrepreneur himself and had a business and sold it. And a robotics person, again, one of the top robotics arm companies sold the company, finished his earnout, you know, really now wants to give back and do something meaningful and can bring this huge body of knowledge from their experience to the table. And then when you think about the other people that we're going to need to be the entrepreneurs to kick off these projects, it's going to need to be people that have already done these type of businesses as well. What we're trying to do to the question of how do you execute 200 projects in a short time frame? Another model, and when we were designing the model, our business model that we wanted to replicate was the renewable energy sector and the what has enabled that scale up. And what has enabled that scale up has been advanced purchase agreements. These you know power purchase agreements were done and you go to a large corporation and they'll say, great, we want 100 megawatts of power. And then you can take that letter of like, okay, great. GE wants 100 megawatts of power. I'm going to go to the bank and the bank's going to be like, great. I trust GE is going to fulfill on this. So here's a loan, Scott. You know, go build a 100 megawatt solar facility. Mm. And boom. And now the project developer moves on to the next solar project and goes and gets a power purchase agreement from Samsung. And that model is repeated over and over and over. And that's not typically what we find in the food production industry. And what we're trying to be is that catalyst. And so what it's going to take is it's going to take entrepreneurs in every country to be able to pull together these advanced purchase agreements. And we're going to try to take that model and apply this into the food sector so that we can still deliver returns to investors, but the returns that the investors are going to make are on actually building the projects. And you're going to be able to deliver 
a high rate of return for an investor and they're going to get rewarded for actual construction and building of the project. And then you've got these assets that are predictable income, predictable outputs, predictable food production. And this is perfect for the bond market. And we're going to build and develop green bonds to be able to roll up these assets. And now this is applicable to sovereign wealth funds, the insurance companies, pension funds, where trillions of dollars are sitting, waiting to be invested into projects that can tackle climate change, projects that can tackle the sustainable development goals. There is so much money out there looking for a place to be. The problem is that there are not bankable, investable projects to be there. And that's at the core of what Orbital Farm is doing. We're designing and developing and building those investable assets that can be applicable to those biggest investors on the planet. Yeah, it sounds like you've given a lot of thought to pulling in sort of best in breed practices for all these different industries. You mentioned uh, the bonds and the power purchase agreements. I guess the equivalent would be like a food purchase, a protein purchase right. <laughs> agreement. Absolutely. As well. I and, mean, think, and, of, uh, think of if you're a company, if you're a manufacturing company, let's just use oats, for example, because it's what I can think of. This year, we had a heat dome over North America. And the, the Western side of North America experienced incredible drought, incredible amounts of heat. We saw a reduction in yields. Canada, by the way, is the largest oat producer on the planet. And we're second only to the European Union, which is a whole bunch of countries. And we had a decline of almost 40% of yield, like 33%, I think, in Canada alone. But combined between North America, between Canada and the United States, I think it's like 43% or something along those lines decline it's significant and this has caused a huge price increase just since the summer in, in oats and so what you're seeing is climate events and climate volatility is driving huge fluctuations in the agriculture sector and we're just at the beginning of what we're going to experience and so you know the even when you just start looking at the pricing volatility in leafy greens and the tomatoes and in, in many different crops these are over 400% volatility. That's crazy. If you had 400% volatility in the stock market, you know how many people would be all over that making billions of dollars off of that? Now, that's how stock market can make money. But the reality is that for the companies that are operating businesses that have these huge price fluctuations, that's really difficult to manage a business long term. So what we offer to large manufacturers are an ability to lock in a price now before it gets really bad and lock in a price now for a very consistent time frame, our volatility is based on really the energy. And so we can lock in these long-term purchase agreements and this can offer that capability to clients and customers to be able to secure a supply chain for a long period of time and move on to start building the next set of projects. That's at the core of what we're trying to enable. When we talk about this idea of feeding a starving population, uh, this is not a something that's new for folks to to wrap their heads around. You know, I grew up in the '80s, and you would have organizations like Live Aid, you know, rice being delivered to Ethiopia. But then, like, it's this idea of the last mile supply chain challenges, and you know, it's, it feels like the, the creation of the food wasn't the problem at that time. It wasn't one of the problems, but it was just the delivery of getting it in the hands of the people who actually need it. And I'm wondering, since you, you do have so many of these 
beautiful minds working on this project, if they're thinking about all these different phases of like, you know, getting the country on board is one aspect, but then getting the infrastructure with it, it does, can it support like a distribution of this food? Can it support, you know, maybe even education of the population to like this as, as another source? And it feels like there's so many moving parts when it comes to problems like these. When you talk about you know, hunger and, and homelessness. And it's just, you know, sometimes they're so big that people have a hard time wrapping their head around all the different moving parts. So, you know, it's, it's an area of focus. You know, we haven't cracked the nut totally yet, but I feel really confident in the direction that we're going. The hunger has a, a number of different layers. Hunger, generally, there's food insecurity just generally in North America, in the developed world, where you're just not close enough to a, a retail store. That largely can be served by a lot of smaller scale vertical farm systems. That that has a great opportunity to address some of the regional distribution challenges and issues. In the developing world, a lot of hunger really at the end of the day is driven by because they don't have enough money. That's a big, big component of the reality of the situation. And they get into hunger situations not 24-7, not, not every day of the year. It's really between a two and a four month time frame during dry seasons or wet seasons when they have an inability to be able to produce income and to be able to then afford some of that food and or their crops or their fields or, or their farm just isn't being able to be productive. And that really is a huge stress and drain. And so that gives really interesting opportunities, because if you can think about a facility that you know two to four months of the year that it needs to be focused in helping a local population, but then the rest of the year, this could actually be used to export product could to, to an international market to one of these long-term offtake agreements. Now you can start to build really interesting business models that are designed where you're baking in, you know, covering those costs, providing maybe even food purchase agreements through a world food program. The other layer of hunger here that you, you mentioned is also logistics and transportation and what we're feeling right now. It is a real and, and significant problem. We need to get off of this ability or this concept of aid being, you know, we're just going to produce this and, and ship over some bags of rice and soybeans. This is these people aren't getting zero vegetables in their diet. They, these people are not really. I mean, they're kind of surviving, but not really. What we need to do is we need to have their ability to be able to produce food in their own home, in their own country. Like that's what we need to enable. And in order to do that, you can't just provide a finished product. You need to provide a product that entrepreneurs there on the ground can add value to. And this is why centering a system and centering an orbital farm project around these biotechnology hubs that can produce hundreds of thousands of product in a market can get you to that spot to enable an entire industry to emerge of aquaponic systems. And the training that can come from that, the ability to, to be able to then finance controlled or covered agriculture and greenhouses and hoop houses and the ability to, to even start thinking in these ways that right now just it's not even it's not even a possibility um to do that so that's sort of how i think about these challenges and how we're pulling this all together one other point that i guess i want to say just before the end is practically where do we start i'm talking about all these wonderful utopian perspectives and the reality was that when we started looking at developing projects in all the places that I mentioned earlier, they're really remote. And if you want to build 200 projects, you're going to have to show that to at least a thousand investors because you're not going to get yes on every single time. Definitely. And a thousand is definitely on the absolutely lowest scale of what you're going to need to do to, to make that happen. 
And so if the first facility is three or four hours drive from an international airport, uh, how many investors are you going to be able to convince to get on an airplane, go fly to this remote place, drive to that place, see the facility? How am I going to get 1,000, 2,000 investors through there? The place that emerged was New Mexico and at Spaceport America. And Spaceport America is in the middle of a desert-ish. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a bunch of sand desert, but it's in the middle of nowhere. It gets well over 300 days of sunshine every year. It uh, is incredibly water stressed. It's in a what's called an opportunity zone in the United States. It's the communities came together, self-tax themselves to build a spaceport in their community because they wanted to attract business and, and industry there because they were suffering. And their ability to be able to produce and develop really a, a very first spaceport on this planet is completely inspirational. 27% of people in this county are currently living in poverty. Wow. This is a county of 10,000, not even 11,000 people. This is crazy. And so this is a location where in New Mexico is the most food insecure state in the United States. This is a location where we can build and develop a project that we can provide food to a local community who frankly deserves it. It also is the place where 700, 800 people, I think now have paid for their deposits to fly in Virgin Galactic. And if you've got Two hundred to four hundred and fifty thousand dollars to drop on a one and a half hour adventure to go into space. You likely have a few other uh, hundred thousands or millions of dollars in your pocket, and you're going through a life changing moment. You're there for two or three days. We're going to be able to provide you salads and smoothies and sushi, and we're going to give you a Disney like experience for adults that is going to blow your mind. And your family and friends are there, and we can give you this luxury experience and demonstrate to you this is how we change the world in a positive, reinforcing way. And you have an opportunity to provide that purchase, advanced purchase agreement to be the catalyst. Choose where you want to locate it. Do you want to product? You're from the Middle East? Great. You know, there's a huge food security problem there. You're from India? Awesome. You know, there's so many opportunities in, in, in there. You're just, you're from California? Great. Look, these are all possibilities. Your corporations, your investments that you currently probably have, they probably have a carbon dioxide problem that we could turn into a usable product, a valuable product. You probably have a renewable energy opportunity or problem, and we can develop a renewable energy project alongside our project and reduce our overall cost of, of energy for both of us. Co-developing these type of assets are perfect. You probably have a waste stream challenge that you're dealing with. We can gasify waste streams. We can reuse wastewater. We can extract nutrients from wastewater streams. So there's so many great opportunities for us to sit down and have that conversation with them. And this really becomes that catalyst project. And so we're focused right now on building a project there at Spaceport America, where we're going to build a microgrid to be able to power and support the whole facility. We're going to have electrolyzers to be able to produce hydrogen there. We're going to set up a carbon capture system and capture CO2 directly from the air. Uh, we're going to have greenhouses that are going to be in between our rows of the solar panels so we can demonstrate the production of food and energy and what that marriage really looks like. And we're going to demonstrate these technologies right there where there's an actual need and it's an investable opportunity. It, it is secured by a power purchase agreement for to selling the energy. And we're looking for customers to buy food products and do food purchase agreements and hydrogen purchase agreements. And all these assets will build up to pulling to this project and asset together to be the catalyst project for all of the others. Lots in there. <laughs> I kind of wish we had another hour to go deeper, but it's funny because I had some questions. I was going to ask you about the roadmap. I was going to ask if you had an ask and you sort of, sort of very nicely bundled everything into that 
that summary of what's happening in New Mexico. Very smart to sort of take advantage of that captive audience that's there already, that is probably at that point in their careers where they've you know, accomplished what they want to accomplish. And they're, you know, they're there for that experience, but also, you know, there's a portion of them who, you know, aren't, do think about maybe legacy and, and what they want to contribute back. And so it's really exciting that you've been able to kind of think about all those things ahead of time and, and have that happen, educate them um, as to what's happening in, in New Mexico. And then really maybe something that they might not even be aware of, or just, you know, it's something that's crossed our mind, but I think being able to paint the picture of what's possible and how they're, investment of time or money or resources can help do something that's actually for the benefit of the entire planet as well. Yeah. Thanks, Harry. I appreciate that. I mean, it's sort of one of the situations where it's like, why wouldn't you help with this if you have the means and, and capacity? Like, why not? That's what we've spent the time trying to figure out and trying to cut up all those arguments. And okay, how do we address this? Why not? Okay, we'll move on to that next challenge. And that's that's the life of an entrepreneur anyways, you know, when you're de developing, designing product that you work through that cycle. I guess, you know, one other thing that I'll say as well, just as from an ask perspective, another key person that would be fantastic at this point would really be someone that has raised over a billion dollars. What we want to do is we want to pull together and finance a large number of the projects from the concept phase to the bankable project phase. And we want to work in partnership with other companies that already have technologies. We, are, we don't have patents on any of these systems. We are licensing of technologies and, and to integrate and, and deploy these. But what we want to do is we want to build a portfolio of, of investable options and potential projects. And what that takes is that takes a three to seven person team, depending on the scale or scope of that project. And it's going to take two to three years to pull that whole project together to get that to a fully bankable point where you've got the permits, you've got, you know, your three different levels of FEL studies, you validated the concept and your offtake partners de-risk that project where you can go to a bank and say, you know, give us low cost capital to be able to build this project and get construction financing to build the, the facility. It, it's going to take a brilliant financial mind who has done significant work and raised significant capital for other purposes. And this is a great opportunity to now come in and help lead that, this investment vehicle decision. And so that would be my other ask. You know, if others know of other people, you know, come visit our website or biddle.farm and send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from yeah some, some people that this may be inspirational to. So the best place to, is for people to go to orbital.farm to learn more? Yeah, that's our website. And uh, I think, yeah, you can read a little bit more about some of the activities that we're doing, some of the different initiatives and work that this takes us into. So there's space law components to this. There's a little bit more information into yeah, the, the activities and the, and the details. And yeah, that would be great. We'll make sure all those links that you mentioned are in the show notes. I, I get I get the sense that this is going to be a conversation that's going to get people excited and wanting to learn more, especially since it's a little bit different than other companies we've profiled on the podcast. The fact that your the vision seems to be is bigger, and I think we do need big thinkers and big visions. That I think at a time like this, I think it's it really speaks to the importance of what we're trying to solve. And, you know, as many bright minds as we can get working on this, I think um, they'll, they'll all be needed and we'll probably need 
others more that we haven't even discovered yet just, just to kind of put their brain power to this because it's, it's a huge problem to solve. And I, but I think it's, it's exciting and promising to see what progress you've made and, and how you're thinking about solving it, which is truly inspiring. So I, I really appreciate you sharing your story, Scott. Well, thanks, Harry. Really, really appreciate that. The only other piece that I don't know if we really had a chance to really address was more into the actual greenhouse side and the and you know the vertical farming side of things. Yeah. There's another really important piece to this story that what we want to be able to enable it is multiple different types of crops that can be grown within greenhouses and vertical farming systems. You know, when you're thinking about how do you build life support systems, how do you build food production systems for communities and for countries and 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 for eventually space colonies, you've got to grow everything. So we've got to figure out how to grow bananas in greenhouses. We've got to figure out how to grow guava and how do you put fruiting trees into systems. This is amazing research to be done. Can we do that profitably compared to doing it on the ground? No, not likely. Not maybe in Antarctic. Yes, that's maybe profitable there. But the work still needs to be done. We still need to understand what the lighting recipes are, what the what the nutrient concentrations are, what is that specific tailored environment that is perfect for all of these different species of trees. And before something, you know, something happens and they become extinct or are have have the the farming knowledge gets lost. That's a huge fear. You know, we've got a huge aging farming population, and some of this knowledge is, is going to get lost. And as the climate changes and the ability to grow specific crops in these regions and areas, that farming knowledge is going to die. It's going to pass away with the farmers that live. They're not going to completely migrate up to all the different zones where they're going to where they're going to live. So, you know, how do we preserve that knowledge? These are these are really important things that need to be addressed. And why I think this also has an opportunity to be sort of like another international collaboration project, like the International Space Station, that the ISS has been operating for 21 years, and we've had you know, nations that were during the Cold War be able to come together to build this important component and te- piece of technology and conduct research that has truly benefited everyone here on earth significantly. And we have that same opportunity here with this and that through vertical farming systems, through agriculture systems, through controlled environments, this is that next opportunity um, for people to get involved in. And then just lastly, you know, other areas in the vertical farming space that we're interested in are in plant growth for how plants can be used to produce plant-based vaccines, for example, or other other animal proteins, even with plants themselves. These are really you know, developing multi-use capable type of assets, type of vertical farming systems. That's really what we need to have. You need that optionality to be able to produce a variety of different foods and crops. And you need a product that has high enough value. If you want to build a business model that can actually you know, tackle and address hunger, you need a high value product that can support financially the ability to do that. And as long as you don't have overly greedy investors that are holding the equity and making the decision not to take huge dividends out, you can build a business structure that can actually feed people. And so this really takes us into a whole variety of different types of products. We're not interested in cannabis just for the, you know, that was something we avoided and it's really not part of our mission, although it is high value, but I think it, it completely distracts from what our core message is. So. And there's plenty of folks doing a lot of yeah, work in that space. <laughs> They're going to be perfectly fine. I'm not, I have no issue. <laughs>
Yeah, lots of ideas gets the wheels turning. And I, I feel like this is going to be a, a really inspiring episode for folks to listen to and to just think about ways to, to, to connect. So is contact information on the site as well, if people want to connect with the team as well? Yeah, okay. I think it's info at orbital.farm okay. is the, the email that can you can get at me. And um, yeah, reach out and would love to discuss and come back on and talk a little more later. We'd be happy to continue the discussion. I appreciate you sharing your story, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Cultivated for being a fantastic sponsor. If you're looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, make sure you reach out to them today. The best part about it is that their service is free and it's because they work on behalf of their partners. So head on over to cultivated.com. Just leave off the last E. That's C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Fullcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash VFP15. Another reminder, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.